Titus chapter 2, and um, let's go ahead and pray for our time in the Word tonight. God, we ask that right now as we open up your Word, and once again, we are considering your heart for the church, your heart for the men and the women in the church, your heart for those who are older and those who are younger, that, Lord, your desire and design for the church is that it is made up of, of different ages of people who can learn from each other and grow in, uh, and be used in helping each other grow in our walks with you. And so tonight I pray that you would minister to our hearts through your word, that you would teach us, instruct us, and you'd bless our time tonight as we... Um, get into groups and just talk about um, the message and pray this evening as well. And so, God, we, we give you this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started looking at Paul's exhortation to Titus to teach sound doctrine. And there we saw in verse 1, he says, but as for you. And this is kind of in, in conjunction or in, in contrast to the false teachers. He says, as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper or fitting for sound doctrine. And we noted that sound doctrine is meant to result in sound behavior. And that the word he uses here three times for sound in the Greek comes from the word that gives us the, our word hygiene in English. And it's a word that actually means that which is wholesome and that which brings health. And so it refers to making sick people whole. And we talked about what a beautiful thing that is because in the body of Christ, what's made up of, you know, different people, you know, who come into this family of God broken. So he says, give yourself to the teaching of sound doctrine so that the older men would be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. And the older women likewise, that they would be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children and to be discreet and chase homemakers good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech, that that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed and having nothing evil to say of you. So last week we gave our attention, we spent the whole night talking about his admonition, his exhortation to the older men. And the older men, remember, were those who were over 50. Again, how many of you are in that class range? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few of us in the room. Well, tonight we're going to pick up looking at the older women who are to be examples to the younger women. And Paul is telling us that a healthy, the health of any church, I want you to catch this. Paul's telling us here in Titus that the health of any church is going to be in the example that is being set 
by the older crowd, by the older men and women, that we have a role to play, that we have a task to set the example, if you would. And so he says in verse 3 that the older women likewise, notice he uses that word, that's like the older men is the idea, they are to be reverent in behavior. Now, he also used that same term reverent, as you noticed, as we read, in, in addressing the men. And the word reverent means sacred, holy, and consecrated to God. In fact, this is a word that was used to describe the entire Jewish temple complex. That it was you, this same word of reverent, of, a, of it being consecrated. The idea is that it was how it was sacred and consecrated and set apart for the use of God. And I think this is really, really important for us to catch this because Paul is using this word in describing both the older men and the older women in the church to say, like the temple was designated for a unique purpose for God, the older women and the older men, we exist for a unique purpose. We could call it a unique calling for God in the church. And this is something, quite frankly, I think that a lot of us don't take seriously enough. That the older men and the older women in the church have a, a calling. This is what this word reverence is talking about. The temple was consecrated for a purpose. He's saying the older men and older women are consecrated for a purpose. That we have a calling to set an example of what godliness looks like. We have a calling in the church to set the pace for what service is supposed to look like. That we have a calling, a purpose in the church to set an example of what it means to be good husbands and good fathers. So there's a lot that's being put on the shoulders of those who are the older crowd. And I think this is something that we need to understand, that we need to embrace. And those of you who are younger, you know, th this isn't a pass for you. This is, is what you're looking at and going, okay, this, this is what, what, what I need to be working towards as well. This is what I need to be thinking about, that, that this is what God wants me to be in, in, in this place. And that, that I can start being that now to those who are maybe younger than me. And, and I think that perspective is, is everything. And if your perspective is merely to just live your life, make a lot of money, retire comfortably, you're merely living to exist. And you're missing out on the reality that God has chosen you and saved you for a purpose. And he's placed you in a church body and family for a purpose. To be an example, to be a, have a purpose in the kingdom. And all of us in this room who are, are older, we are to be setting this thing up for those who are coming behind us. 
We're to be putting things in place for those who are coming behind us. We're to be setting the, the example of what it means to be godly men and godly fathers and godly husbands for those who are coming behind us because it's been said that the, 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 the church goes as the health of the men go. And so we have this example, guys, that he's laying out here for us. Our sons need to be learning how to treat women by watching the way that we treat our wives. The younger men in our body need to to learn how to treat women by watching those of us who are older. They need to learn from us on what it looks like to treat you know, our children by, as they watch us. And so it's something that we really, really need to take seriously. They learn as they watch us on how to serve Jesus and what it looks like to invest in the body of Christ. So it's important that the older men and the older women understand what their role is. That they have this role, this calling, and I like that word, we're consecrated to a calling and a purpose to be trailblazers. And I want to encourage all of us here to not take that lightly. So the older women are called to have a calling to be reverent, set apart, consecrated, and notice what he says, in their behavior. And the word behavior speaks of their actions, their speech, their conduct, their demeanor, as well as their dress. So they would, it's speaking of the way that they would carry themselves. That the older women in the church were to carry themselves in such a way that that it would exemplify somebody who realizes, I'm consecrated to God. My life is set apart for God. That I'm, I'm surrendered to Jesus first and foremost in my life. That they have a, a purpose, a calling of presenting holiness and what that looks like. Now, he's going to get specific on their behavior in the things that he says next. And he starts with their speech. He says, not slanders. That phrase, not slanders, could also be translated, not malicious gossips. And it's interesting that this is a word in the Greek that's used 34 times of the devil. That's pretty radical, isn't it? 34 times this is used of of the devil. And that makes all the sense in the world because Jesus called him the accuser of the brethren. And that's what what malicious gossips are doing. They're, They're accusing the brethren. This word literally means to throw things at people. And so it's throwing things at them. It's seeking to, to bring them down. So a godly woman will not repeat damaging stories about others. She will not spread rumors or half-truths that damage someone's reputation. It's the idea of having speech that is going to build up rather than tear down. Now listen. Have you noticed this? That insecure people have a tendency to tear down others in order to build themselves up. Have you noticed that with people? You know, people who are insecure, and and insecurity is is just another form of pride. I don't know if you realize that. 
You know, we're insecure because we're so consumed about what others are thinking about us. And so people who are insecure, they're, they're caught up in pride in that way. They have a tendency to tear down others because they want to make themselves look better. And so a godly woman, she's not going to do that. Now, it's interesting that this is not mentioned in the list of the older men. Did you guys notice that? This, this particular thing isn't mentioned, but can, can men be guilty of gossip? Absolutely. Absolutely they can. But I think because women are more general, or in general are more verbal, and they tend to be more open. I mean, we see this every single time, like there's a women's retreat. Um, maybe you're, you've experienced this with your wives. You know, they come back from the, the women's retreat with best friends, Right? You know, they, they, they're best friends with somebody in their room. We come back with acquaintances, you know. We come back maybe with a, with a buddy, you know, somebody that we met. Like, I want to get to know that person. But on the very first night at a retreat, the women are talking all night long. I mean, they're opening up and they're sharing. The guys, maybe on day three, we might get there, right? But with the women, I mean, they're just that, that way. And so I think Paul mentions this because of, of the older women because this can be a bigger issue among women than men. And, you know, we, got, we live, guys, in this society. And we have to be careful of this. Why do you hear me on this? You know, we live in this society that is so full of opinions we live in this society that is so given to being critical. I mean, if you think about it, we have all of these, you know, sports radio shows now and sports podcasts now that are what? It's all about the next day being armchair quarterbacks and talking critically about what that other what the team did wrong you know and we have the same thing in politics and we have the same thing i mean there are there are hundreds thousands of these things that you can tune into and every single day we have the pundits that are just speaking and thinking critically and being opinionated about everything and that can affect us so all of a sudden, that becomes our mindset. That becomes the way that we view things. And we just start looking at everybody around us in a critical manner. Now, it's one thing to think critically, and it's another thing to be critical. You think critically, you're looking at something and seeing like, hey, there might be a problem here that needs to be fixed. Being critical, though, is when I'm going to just complain about it and I'm going to just point it out. And we have to be very, very careful in that. And this is so ingrained in our society now, and it creeps into the church. And I think as men, we have to, we can help our wives in this area by, one, being an example to them of not doing this, that we're not gossiping about other people and people, you know, in the church. And when they start to kind of move in that way, if we're hearing them move in that way in a conversation, to give them a gentle reminder about what their calling is. And I would encourage all of you guys to, to talk to your wives sometime, maybe tonight or sometime tomorrow, sometime this week about this idea. Hey, according to what Paul's laying out here to Titus, we have a calling in the church, of being these people who are consecrated for a purpose, like the temple was consecrated 
to God. And I want to encourage you, all of you parents, to be very, very careful the way that you talk about the church and about people in the church around your kids. You know, you're driving home from church. The kids are in the back of the car and you start popping off about, you know, something that happened or something that was said or somebody who did something. You know what that does to your kids? It goes into their minds that, guy, there's weird people at that place. There's mean people at that place. I know a lot of kids who are so tainted and want nothing to do with the church because they grew up listening to their parents be complain about the church and about people in the church. We've got to be careful about that. Those little ears are, are listening. You want your kids to think that the church is the greatest place to be full of the most wonderful people. And when they get to the age where they realize that that's not true, then you can have intelligent conversations with them about how all, everybody's broken, everybody's flawed, and how God has called us to be people who show grace to one another. But when they're younger, when they're impressionable, they don't, they don't need, it's, it's not, not helpful at all for them to hear you talking. So be careful. Be careful. You have a calling. You have a purpose to be those examples in the body. So the older women are to be good examples in their speech. And then he mentions this, and not given to much wine. And it's interesting that these two are placed side by side because there's an often a, a connection between a loose tongue and alcohol, isn't there? You know, all the times people get, you know, they get a little inebriated, they get a little bit, you know, just kind of feeling relaxed, and suddenly they start saying things and they're not thinking about it anymore. But the point here, once again, is the same as we looked at in chapter 1 with the elder when he says, not given to, the idea there is not addicted to. And it's important that we realize that. You see, the Bible doesn't, pro it doesn't prohibit or prevent the drinking of alcohol. It prohibits drunkenness. Drinking is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And like I've said before, one way to make sure that you don't end up sinning in drunkenness is to not drink. But I do know that there are some people who they have that liberty and they're able to keep that in check. And it doesn't become something in their lives that becomes an abusive type of thing. But, but I also think we need to do this. We need to define drunkenness. What is drunkenness? I think a lot of people, especially people who like to drink, would say, well, drunkenness is when I'm falling over, you know, I'm passing out. That's being drunk. But in our society, there's a classification of being legally drunk. I don't know what the point zero zero is, but, you know, when you hit the point zero zero of that, the, you, you get a ticket. You're going to lose your license. You might go to jail because you are legally drunk. And someone might say, well, hey, I wasn't drunk. Well, were you over the legal limit? Well, yeah, I was. Well, the Bible tells us that we're to obey the laws in our land. So the law in our land says this is drunkenness, to be at this limit, so if we're going to obey the laws in our land, then we need to make sure that if we're drinking, that we're not 
hitting that level. Now, I had a friend I was talking to uh, a while back, and he was at a wedding, and he had been, he had been drinking. And he told me that, and this is afterwards, he told me that um, he decided to have his wife drive home. And so I wanted to bait him a little bit there, you know, because it's like, well, why? Were you drunk? Oh, no, no, I wasn't drunk. Well, then why did... Now, I did not want him to get behind the wheel, all right? That wasn't why I was trying to... But I wanted, him to, I wanted him to think through the process. Okay, if you weren't drunk, why did you want her to drive you home? You see, we have to start thinking seriously about, about this and thinking, you know, logically about this. If, we're, if we are going to, you know, have express our liberty in that way. And so this is what we also need to understand, though, about this passage. Don't, don't, you got to hear this. If you're tuning me out, if you, if you kind of went down a rabbit trail, please come, come back, come back right now. Because we need to hear this right now, what he's saying. The Lord is taking this here in Titus beyond drunkenness. Because here in Titus, what he's talking about, when he says not given to, it's not being addicted to, or we could say it's not being dependent upon. And so I think according to God's word, if a person needs alcohol to sleep or relax or to get in the right state of mind in order to have a meeting, you're given to it. That's being addicted to it. That's being dependent upon it. So this is broader than just drunkenness. And I know, I know guys who, they carry around a flask. They got it in their coat. And they pull it out like, what in the world is that about? Oh, you know, I just, that's being given to. I can't get through the day without a couple swigs. That's being given to. That's a problem. That's what he's talking about here. Because this is what we need to understand. Catch this, catch this. God doesn't want us to be given, that's the word used, to anything but Jesus. He doesn't want us to be given, dependent upon anyone but the Holy Spirit. And it's no coincidence that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul will say this, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does he put those two together? Because they both speak of a dependency. And he doesn't want us to be dependent on alcohol for anything. He wants us to be people who are dependent upon his Holy Spirit. And so there is to be a marked difference in what we are given to as followers of Jesus Christ. And the last thing I'm going to say on this is if you have this liberty, that liberty, as far as drinking goes, I just want to say this. Keep that to yourself. Because the Bible tells us that we need to, in exercising our liberties, to make sure that we are not going to stumble another brother. That would be in the, 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 uh, uh, the, the essence of, of committing, having, that they would be um, led to commit sin. So they would maybe look at you. They see you at a restaurant. Oh, you're you know, having a beer. And go, oh, he's, you know, he's, got, he's, he's one of the leader guys at church, and he's, he's got liberty, so... I must have liberty as well. But they don't. And so they end up getting trapped in it. But it's not just causing somebody to stumble. Paul, I think it's in Romans 14, actually uses this term that, you wouldn't, that your liberty wouldn't also offend somebody. 
And we have to think in those two things because this is the thing. There are some people who I have some dear friends that, I mean, they're just like, I don't think any Christian should ever drink. My mom's that way. You know, any Christian should ever, ever drink. My dad was a, you know, functioning alcoholic before he got saved. And so that's the lifestyle they came out of. And just like, you know, nope, alcohol is not to be a part of the Christian's life. So they would be offended. So you got to be aware of that. you got to realize the people that are around you. So keep that private, that liberty. As Paul would say, and Paul would go so far in talking about you know, liberty. He said, you know what? If my liberty caused one of my brothers or, or sisters to, to, be, to stumble or to be offended, I, I'll forfeit my liberty. Because he realized this. He said, if I'm causing one of my brothers to stumble, I'm sinning against Christ. I'm sinning against Jesus because they're a part of the body of Christ. So it's important that we understand that. It's important that we realize that. So the godly woman who is to be an example to the younger ladies is not to be given to wine. She's to be given to Jesus. And then he mentions this next, teachers of what is good or teachers of good things. And the teaching here is both oral and practical. In other words, it's both teaching what she's speaking, but it's also teaching with her life. And he mentions here teachers of what is good. Good is beautiful. So it's teaching with words and how they live to be truly beautiful and godly. And Paul defines what those good and and beautiful things are in verse 4 when he says that they would admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. And the idea here is really in this, that they would admonish them in in, in how to love their husbands and their children. You see, most young moms love their husbands and their kids. But sometimes they don't know what that's supposed to look like, practically. They don't know what it is supposed to look like for them to love their kids and love their husband. I remember that when my wife and I first got married, and she put so much pressure on herself to be this perfect wife. And then when we had kids, to be this perfect mom. And it was killing her. And it was getting to the point where, where, I mean, I'd come home from work and the house would be spotless. It would just look amazing. And there'd be this amazing meal, you know, on the, on the, the table waiting for me. But my wife was just thrashed and a wreck because she hadn't spent any time with Jesus She hadn't had any of her devotional time. All the things about her that I I fell in love with, she (laughs) abandoned all those things, trying to be the perfect wife, perfect mom. And I had to tell her, I said, babe, I don't care if I come home and the house is a mess. I don't care if you, you didn't get time to make dinner. And you call me and say, hey, can you pick something up on the way home? I said, I said, you know, I, I, I want to make, I want you, I want to, I want you to make sure that you're, you're taking time, some time to spend with the Lord. So when you get Aaron down for a nap, cause he got up so early, you couldn't do your devotions, you know, early, spend that time with Jesus then. And if you don't get to all the things, I'll help you with it when I get home. 
But knowing her heart was, man, I want to please you. I want to be a good wife. I want to be a good homemaker. I want to take care. It's like I knew. It wasn't like, like she was wanting to just sit on the couch and eat bonbons and watch soap operas all day. I knew that wasn't her heart, okay? If that's where your wife is at, you got, you got a different problem to deal with, okay? But knowing that was her heart, it was like, hey, you, you know, babe. And this is what the older women need to come in and help the younger women to learn balance. To learn how to keep the main thing the main thing. To find the balance in, in their relationships. And, and that word um, that speaks of, of loving, it also speaks of building friendships with their husband and their kids. And so, again, finding the balance in all of that. And sometimes, you know, life can just be such a struggle that it's hard. It's hard for the young moms to find that balance. And so the older wives and women on the church are to help them do that. And I love in our women's ministry, they've really taken this seriously, you know, over the years. And I love how they've had these times where they've done what they call Pinterest and Proverbs. And it's been this, you know, time in their women's ministry, a whole season that just is given to, you know, the older women um, teaching the younger women how to do things like sew and how to cook really special meals, and how to you know, do homeschooling a little bit more creative, and just real practical things like that. The older women are meant to help the younger women in that way. And also, notice number five, or verse five, to be discreet. And the idea there is to be in control of their impulses and their passions. To be discreet. To learn how to be in control of their impulses and their their actions. And then it says chase. The word chase is to be sexually pure in their behavior and dress so that they're not being flirts, not being overly friendly with men who aren't their husbands. And then it mentions homemakers. And the idea there is good at taking care of the home. Now, does this mean that a woman can't work a job outside of the house. Is that what this is speaking of? Is that what this means here? That's hard here in California. It's hard, man. It costs a lot to live here. I think this has been erroneously, and I want you to hear me on this, erroneously taught in the church that women are meant to stay at home and cook and clean and take care of the kids, that that's their only role. That we're just to keep them barefoot and pregnant. You know, like that's the, the role of the, the wife. I think the problem with that picture is this, is when you look at the Proverbs 31 woman who is lifted up in Scripture as this great example for women to follow, she's admonished in, in that chapter for being this woman who is a great wife and she's a great homemaker. She's definitely admonished for that. But she's also admonished and praised for being resourceful and a good businesswoman. I mean, listen to some of these verses that speaks of her in that way, that she finds wool and flax and busily spins them. The idea is she's out looking for these things, looking for these deals, if you would. She's like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. She goes to inspect a field and buys it. I mean, that's like a businesswoman. Like, I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go buy us a car. You know, I'm going to go expect it. I'm going to go buy it. I mean, she's resourceful in that way. 
With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's energetic and strong and a hard worker. And then this one, she makes belted linen garments and sashes to sell to the merchants. He's creating a picture of a woman who's not just a homemaker, but she's a businesswoman. She's, she's bringing in some, some income. And so the, the, the question is, well, which is it? It can be both. It can be both. Now, I want to say this, though, and I want to preface by saying this is my own personal conviction. I think when the kids are young and when they're not in school or when they're, of that, they're not of school age, I think moms need to be home raising those kids. And even if that means that that couple's going to sacrifice things, that they're not going to, you know, get by things, or they're not going to maybe live at a certain standard because they're sacrificing for this season because they realize in this season that, you know, we, we want to, this is what we want. Our kids are the first priority in our relationship. I think that's really, really important that they make those sacrifices, that they agree to that. And that can be really hard. I mean, we live in a very materialistic you know, society, and it can be so hard, especially with now with Instagram and you know, all these other apps where you get on, you see people's lifestyle, and you think, I want that. I want that lifestyle. And, and, and it can cause this undue stress. When the kids, though, get older and go to school, if she doesn't homeschool, I think it's fine for her to go to work, but I think mom should be home when the kids get out of school so that she's there to greet them. And the nice thing about our culture today is that uh, there's a lot of opportunities where women can actually work from home and they can do their work at home and plan their days around doing both, taking care of the home and the house and also making an income. But I think the number one priority needs to be the family. That's her first calling and she's uniquely built for that role. The next thing he mentions here is that that she would be that they would teach her to be good and obedient or really the word there is submissive to her husbands. And man, that word submit, submissive is a word that a lot of women don't like in our culture today. Some of you have heard me share this before, but there was a preacher named Louis T. Talbot who was preaching up in LA years ago. And he was preaching one Sunday on the subject of how wives need to submit to their husbands. And when he was done, this great big lady carrying a great big purse, wearing a great big hat, came walking up to him, got right in his face and said, Dr. Talbot, how dare you tell us wives that we're to submit to our husbands? If I was your wife, I'd put poison in your tea tomorrow. And without missing a beat, he said to her, and if I was your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> I remember, though, I was doing premarital counseling with a, a couple, and we were talking about the vows, and, and this gal that was, wanted to get married, she was like, I will not say that I will be submitted, submitted to my husband. Because she just such a negative connotation of what that meant. And so we had to really, you know, work through that, and we had to really talk about that. But here's the thing. The Bible makes it very, very clear that the husband is to be the head of the the household. And the reason is that it's a picture of Jesus and the church. So the men are called, Kate, we're talking calling here, to be the head. Now get this, guys. Hear me on this. You are not the head because you're better. 
You're not the head because you're smarter. You're, you're not the head because you're more spiritual. In fact, in most cases, you're not any of those things better than your, than your wife. She's more spiritual than you. She's probably smarter than you and, and uh, maybe even more resourceful than, than you. So then what is it? Why does God want us to be the head? Well, because it's a matter of responsibility. It's because of this picture. And so what God is saying to you, it's, it's not a thing of authority. It's not a thing of like, hey, I'm the head. It's, it's a thing, and you need, to, you need to, to realize it in this way, that all the weight of the success and the direction of your family, God is placing on your shoulders primarily. That's why you're the head. Marriage is this picture of Jesus and the church. And what does the Bible tell us? We love him. Why? Because he first loves us. So our love for Jesus is in response to his love for us. In the same way, the wife's uh, love for her husband is going to be in response to his love for her. And so we have to love our wives rightly. And Jesus is laid up for us as the head of the church, as the ultimate example of the servant leader who's laying down his life for his bride. And so this is a high calling that we are called to as husbands, to lay down our lives by coming underneath our wives and underneath our children in order to elevate them and to serve them. And the problem that many women have in the church with submission stems from the fact that both the husband and the wife don't have a clear understanding of her role and really the beauty and the importance of it. The the role of the wife is a wonderful and elevated role in Scripture that we need to realize. In fact, if you go back to the first marriage, the very first couple there in the book of Genesis, this is really clear and really beautiful. God says to um, them, and the Lord said, it's not good for man that he should be alone, but I will make a helper comparable to him. The word helper in the Hebrew is the word izer konegdo. This is a powerful and beautiful name. The name is Zer appears 21 times in the Old Testament, twice in reference to Eve and the first woman, three times in reference to the nations to whom Israel appealed to for military support. And get this, 16 times it's used of God as the helper of Israel. Some of the examples of the Hebrew term ezer or helper and used of God is that he is the helper of the fatherless, Psalm 10, 14. That he was King David's helper and deliverer in Psalm 70, verse 5. That Israel's shield and helper in Deuteronomy 33, 29. Those are just a couple of examples. In Genesis 2, this word ezer is, is combined with the word konegdo to mean something like a helper of the same nature or a corresponding nature. So konegdo literally means as in front of him. A helper as in front of him, suggesting that the Ezer of of Genesis chapter 2 was Adam's perfect match. We might say that she was the yin to his yang, the perfect match. 
And so everything about this title implies a mutuality, a harmony, and a partnership between the husband and wife. And that's what marriage is. In fact, we see that in the Genesis account because it says right after that, and God said to them, and God blessed them. It doesn't, it doesn't say, and God said to Adam, because Eve, she's not significant. She's just the helper. No, 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 no. She's his comrade. She's his lifesaver. She's, she's this, this one who's brought next to him to be equal with him. This is the idea of that title. God said to them, and God blessed them, and what comes next is their mission. He said, be fruitful and multiply and take care of this garden. And you're supposed to do this together. It's like a company that comes together and you've got your CEO and your CFO and they're working together as, as in a partnership to move that company along. So the idea and context of the helper is the woman is man's essential comrade, his lifesaver. And so this is the high view that God has of the wife, the Isaiah Conegdo. The idea is that she has a special place in the family to come alongside of her husband in a way that is supportive to the role that God has called him to. She comes alongside of him to help him bear the weight, to carry the weight, to carry the responsibility in this partnership that we call marriage. And listen, it's a wise husband who realized that, who realizes that about his wife, that God has brought his wife into his life to compliment him. That it's the two of them partnering together in the running of the household. It's a wise husband who's tapping into her strengths, recognizing those. It's a wise husband who realizes, my wife is better than me at some of these things. I'm going to let her do that. I'm going to let her run with that. My wife is smart and she's wise. I'm going to seek her counsel. I'm not going to just do what I think is best and, and say, woman, you have to submit. No, I, I'm, we're in a partnership. I'm going to ask her. I'm going to come to her. I'm going to seek her. This is the idea with this name. And I'll tell you this. I have never, ever once in all my years of ministry met a husband who treated his wife with that type of respect who valued her in that type of way. I've never, ever once seen a couple where the husband treated his wife in that way where the wife had a problem with submission. Not at all. Because she realized, I'm, I'm, we're in this together. There's this partnership. And so the older women are to help the younger wives to understand their role as this Ezer Konegdo and how to support their husbands. And here's the thing we need to catch. And we talked about this last week. All of this implies relationship between the older wives and the younger ones. It impl- it's implying relationship. It's, it's implying like... I'm coming alongside of you to walk with you in this. It's not just teaching. It's not just giving them a study to do, but it's coming alongside. It's walking with them in these type of things. And that was one of the things we talked about last week about the younger men and the older men is that it has to be relational. 
So we're building relations. We're going to see this again next week when we're looking at at what what Paul says to the younger men and then what he says to Titus, who was also a younger man. So all the younger men, there's like a double thing being said, and we're going to look at that next week. But if you are an older couple and you think you have a marriage that honors Jesus and is worth emulating, I want to encourage you, pick a younger couple to invest in, to get to know and to mentor and don't tell them like don't go hey we want to mentor you guys don't don't do that but take them out to lunch invite them over the house let them get to begin to get to know you and it'll happen quite naturally that they'll see in you that you're somebody that they can emulate and that they can grow from The last thing that Paul mentions here tells us why this is so important. He says that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And here is what Paul is saying. A godly house is a testimony to the gospel. A house that is out of order, though, is a blight to the gospel. It it can be a reason to blaspheme. And you know where it starts with the kids. The kids are like, and and I I hate to say this, but especially when I was a youth pastor, I know our youth pastors get this sometimes as well. Young kids saying, man, my parents are such hypocrites. They're completely different people at home than they are here. It becomes a blasphemy to the gospel. A house out of, out of order, is it's going to give a reason for the kids to blaspheme. It's going to give a reason for the, for the neighbors to blaspheme. Oh, this is a joke. These Christians, followers of Jesus, and they, they can't even get along. But a beautiful, godly marriage attracts people to Jesus. It's like the reason why people are attracted to Hawaii or the Grand Canyon. There's a beauty about it. And when people see a, that loving couple, in fact, I think a loving couple can be the greatest testimony to the work of Jesus in, in the world today because there's so many marriages that are falling apart. So Paul brings up this idea that our behavior impacts the way that others view Jesus and the gospel here. He does it again in verse um, 8 with Titus. He does it again in verses 9 and 10. And, and it's catching again the big picture of the calling. It's what Paul would say in Colossians when he says that we need to have a conduct that is worthy of the gospel or weighs as much as the gospel. And so this is what this all means for us, guys, as we're talking about our family, as we're talking about our, our wives and their responsibility, talking about our responsibility, there's a bigger picture in all of this. And the bigger picture is the gospel. We're put on planet Earth to be representatives of Jesus. And we need to realize that and embrace that and walk in that. Amen?